All right, welcome, and thank you for joining us on this week's episode of 22 Motivational Minutes with Marlo, where we connect and collaborate with experts in their industries, published authors, and fascinating people. And as a chief inspirational officer, I am focused on the development of people by unearthing their values, their talents, and their self-worth, otherwise known as that self-esteem element, which is huge in today's business world. People matter. Self-worth matters. Time matters. And when all of that aligns, everything works. And I am so excited to share that we have Greg Saxton on the line with us today for this um, podcast episode. Greg, are you with us? I'm with you, Marla. Excellent. Well, welcome. And Greg, you are joining us from Boston. Is that correct? Actually, Boston's where I grew up. Right now, I live in Charlestown, West Virginia. It's about 90 minutes out of D.C. Okay. Well, wonderful. So those folks that are out there, we just got off the phone, too, with somebody out there in Istanbul, Turkey. So, I mean, this this audience is really getting uh, just a huge exposure. So, Grace, thank you for that. Um, so let me just introduce, so who is Grace? Grace is a business growth coach who helps entrepreneurs unleash their full potential. He's the author of Don't Let the Fear Win, How to Get Out of Your Own Way and Grow Your Business Fast. A former All-American wrestler and a world-class Spartan racer, Greg combines his love of peak performance with his gift of helping clients radically increase the impact and income of their businesses. You can learn more about Greg at gregsaxton.com, where he explores the intersection of business and personal development. And when he's not working intimately with his clients, you can find him walking his dog, Scout, on the 80-acre farm um, where you currently live. So, Okay, so I'm just going to go there for a minute. What kind of dog is Scout? Scout, uh, Scout is a boxer mix. Okay, excellent. So you have a fur boxers are Boxers are the best breed. We, uh, we got her at a shelter, and uh, once you find a breed that you like, I think you're a dog person, you kind of don't look around. We're definitely boxers. People are fun dogs. Awesome. Oh, that's so fun. That's good. All right, so um, I want to take that um, – Right there, your background intersects with kind of what you do in today's business world. How have you developed yourself, Greg, in your platform? And, and let's start that ball rolling right there. Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, it makes me think of one of the big challenges that you know, I see in the coaching industry, for example. Now, not all your listeners are coaches, but as an industry that's becoming more saturated, where a lot of people are interested, obviously, in helping people be their best selves and, and work on their businesses and support people in that way. One thing that I found is people come into a new industry, right? They make some sort of career switch. They start a new business, and they forget about everything that came before it, right? So they're now they're just kind of a general life coach or a general business coach. And so one of the things that was important to me as I created my platform, as I created the business, was taking uh, the experience that I had before that. And for me, that was as an athlete. It was in kind of the mental side of sports and peak performance. Like I mentioned, Spartan racing, which is kind of that new breed of obstacle course racing where people are falling under barbed wire and going on trail runs and carrying buckets with cement and things like that. And then as an All-American wrestler, too. And that's something that I've always – that was kind of my gateway drug sports to the world of personal development and uh, the mental game and performance. So that's something that I knew I wanted to bring in with the entrepreneurs that I coached so that we had both the – strategic side of building their business, but also the mental side of who, how are they as an entrepreneur showing up each day and able to execute what they need to get done. Absolutely, right. So there's a technical element. I mean, we all know that. Like, that's just operating within the business 
sector, whatever portion you were in, but that mental element of performance. Take us there for a minute. I mean, like, where is that within you, Greg, and, like, how have you been able to tap into that to serve others? Sure. Okay, so there's, there's a few questions in there. So I'll start with the first kind of thought that came to mind, which was mindset is, is I guess, kind of a hot area right now. I think we're in one of the uh, one of the booms of personal development, people understanding that the mental game, the thoughts they think, the way they pursue their goals makes a big difference in whether they actually reach them, right? So we know that. Um, but I think what we don't fully understand all the time is if you have the right inner game, right, or mental game, uh, you can basically try almost any strategy. Eventually, you're going to find something that works for you. If you don't have your inner game tuned up, if you don't have the right mindset when you approach something, even the best strategies aren't going to work for you, right? You're going to either try to take someone else's way of doing things, and it's not really going to go the same for you, or you're going to try something that doesn't work right away, so you quit and you give up, you do something else. Um, you're not going to be able to manage your time effectively, Right, so that's, I think, why it's so crucial to pair the mindset with the strategy. Um, you have to remind me of kind of the second piece of your question, something of how it applies to me. You right. me of that? Yes, absolutely. It's that mental gain element, right? So you talk about, you know, tapping into the mental gain. How do you, because we know the strategies are there, okay? But how do you get people into that? What is it that, that you do to connect them to that mental gain? Sure. Well, it, it depends on the person, right? But I found a commonality uh, among people in general, but especially entrepreneurs, because it's inherently uh, a risky, independent endeavor, is fear, right? Fear is basically kind of the number one thing that I think stops us from unleashing our potential, making more money, helping more people. And sometimes it's not all that obvious. It's not on the surface, right? We could think, well, I'm not a scared person. I'm generally like Marl. I'm sure you're a confident person. You're, you come off as very confident and together. Um, I'm sure there's not a lot of over-fear that people sense, but we all know that as entrepreneurs, there's some hidden fears that can stop us from taking action on the things that are really the highest leverage things. So one of the terms that I talk about is creative avoidance, which I think is one of the biggest issues for high performers that I know, and especially business owners. And creative avoidance is not procrastination. When I think of procrastination, it's sort of you know, you're on Facebook when you know you should be getting a certain email out, right? You, you, there's something that you consciously know you need to do, but you're just putting it off a bit. Creative avoidance is more insidious because it happens below the surface. It happens in our subconscious. If we have a fear of uh, failure or even a fear of success related to getting a certain type of client, for example, or raising our fees or doing any type of marketing with a webinar, just as an example, then it might hold us back from taking action on any of that stuff, and we could spend time on our logo, we could come up with a good URL name, we could uh, get some bookkeeping done, right? There's a lot of things that we could do to stay busy, but creative avoidance keeps you from working on those really high leverage tasks that would move your business forward, because typically those are the ones that are the scariest. They're the ones where you have, where you're most exposed, where you could be judged, where you could fail, where you could succeed and then have things change in that way, too. So that, I think, is the, is the most fertile area for development for most entrepreneurs in the mindset realm, is where are they creatively avoiding, why are they doing that, and what is it going to take for them to be able to take action on some of those areas that are, uh, that are scarier for them. Mm, absolutely. All right, so and I'm curious, too, and just as I listen to you, Greg, as you explain that, do people even know that they have creative avoidance? 
It's a good question. I think for most people, if I if I explain it uh, clearly enough, they have sort of an innate sense that they're doing it. You know, I think all of us when we hear that, like, yeah, you know, there's I can be really busy, right? I got a lot done this week. But there can sometimes be a sense of what were the, actually the meaningful things? What were the memorable things that I can uh, point to and say that really moved the needle? That moved my business forward. That was emotionally difficult to do. You know, for example, this not so much with this interview, but with my first podcast interview, for example, that was a scary thing. It was new for me. But that was a good thing for me to do. It was much higher leverage you know, on a podcast interview than, I don't know, maybe write up, you know, a, a piece of writing that I was never going to show anyone else. It was just to clarify my thoughts. Um, so I, I do think that people usually know, yeah, I might be creative avoid now. It takes them digging deeper to figure out what are actually those things for that specific person that would make a difference, and what are maybe some of their triggers, what are their patterns, where when they start getting close to a certain goal or action, it becomes scary enough where they stop. Because once you can recognize the patterns, it becomes a lot easier to obviously change them once you have that awareness. Absolutely. And this is the thing, too, and I'm sure, Greg, you find this all the time in your success, that, you know, when you're thinking small about yourself, I believe we're thinking small about others. And like you said, you took the risk and the challenge. You know, you stepped out. You went into a podcast interview. You proved to yourself that you could do it. Now look at you today. You're just like, yeah, it's second nature. It's called mastery, right? Yeah, one of the things that I, I like to – one of the ways I like to think about this is bravery is like a muscle, right? So just like you were just mentioning from podcast interview number one to I don't know how many I've done at this point, but it's, I have more – uh, kind of emotional strength, right? And just in the same way that you can't go and bench press 500 pounds right out of the gate or go run 20 miles if you haven't ever run before, um, there's going to be some uh, some building of that bravery muscle that needs to take place whenever you're breaking into a new realm or just taking your business to the next level that's a stretch mentally for you because you've never been there before. You've never been at that level. And that's not to say it's impossible just because you can't do it now, but it does mean that it's something that can be learned if you let it atrophy, though, right, if you continue to stay within a comfort zone, it's going to be really hard when that's called upon, when you need to be brave in your business, uh, to step up because you just haven't been testing yourself emotionally, you haven't been putting yourself out there in ways that would build that muscle. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Oh, my gosh. People are just like, they're oozing on this right here. So um, you talk about triggers and patterns. Can you take us there just a little bit more, Greg, and what you mean by triggers and patterns and how you unearth that to overcome? Uh, sure. So if we look at uh, any of the habit research that's been done recently, right? So like Charles Duhigg wrote a great book on habits. Um, I'm forgetting the name right now. But one of the things that he talks about is all the research shows that with habits, there's a trigger, right? There's a, there's a trigger that happens. So for example, I have a bad habit of biting my nails sometimes, and the trigger for me is just boredom, right? I'll do it if I'm watching TV. Um, so recognizing this, what the trigger is for that negative habit or positive habit. And then there's a behavior, and then there's some sort of reward that you get from that, right? We only build habits when there's, when there's some sort of reward. So we take that habit thinking into the realm of uh, kind of the emotional strength and the mindset. It's really important to know what are your triggers for things that go well, like when you do feel inspired and brave and wanting to do take bold action in your business, what's the trigger for that? What are the circumstances you need to set up in order to allow that to happen? And when maybe you go into kind of a creative avoidance loop, like maybe, you know, you check your email and then you go and check your stats and then you 
you know, look at some other thing, like look at your website. Things that you know aren't actually productive, yet in one of those internet loops, what are the triggers for that? You know, and it starts with recognizing when you're in that loop and then figuring out what came kind of right before that. So for a lot of people, um, for a lot of people, something that really is helpful in terms of, I mean, we won't talk about all the negative triggers. That's really going to be specific to the person. But one of the things that's really helpful if you want to take uh, more consistent action on the things that really matter is creating space. What I mean by space is just creative avoidance thrives on busyness, right? So if we stay busy enough to not have to feel any fear, to not have to feel anything to kind of stay numb, then we don't have to ever confront the thing that we know we need to do. So, for example, you know, I work with a lot of other coaches, right? And a lot of coaches, when they start off, need to get clients. And they could spend time, again, on their website, on their logo, maybe even on their blog, which may seem high leverage but may not actually result directly in a client. Or they could put out some sort of free session offer, right? Or they could go call up a potential client or they could put themselves in position to be in an enrollment call with that potential client. Those are really the high leverage things. Now, if they continue to do the – they continue to creatively avoid to stay busy, um, but at the end of the day, they don't really know what they did to move the client thing forward. It's probably because they didn't have enough space to sit and say, what is the most important thing today? And so that's where practices like meditation, like just, you know, getting your dog for a walk, for example, and it's like, I need to go on dog walks because I'm naturally sort of an anxious creator personality. I know a lot of entrepreneurs are like this, where we like to be in motion, and we like to be stimulated, always learning these things, always kind of doing things, those are usually the people who get the most done. But if we don't take time to pause, then we'll stay busy with the stuff that doesn't matter as much. So um, I don't know if this falls into the trigger assistance category that you mentioned, but one of the biggest tactics, just really small, actionable things that people could leave with today is productivity is not about getting more done. It's actually about getting less done because that creates the space to figure out when I do do things, what are the things that will render everything else kind of useless or not as important anymore. Right. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So you're a top athlete. I mean, that's where your background comes from. Tie this into your mindset, Greg, as you, you know, like, how did you push yourself forward to compete and to stay on top, you know, when you're when you're thinking of having, like, a champion's mindset, okay, and applying this to what you do in this mental game? What did you do personally? Was, is there something, is there a catalyst moment that stands out? I yeah, there was. Um, it happened my sophomore year of high school as a wrestler, and there were two matches that kind of show the difference that mindset can make. So the first match was uh, earlier on in the season. It was an invitational tournament. Came in. It was uh, it was a tournament in New Hampshire, and I was seated first. So I you know I came in very confident, and I ended up in the finals with this guy named Robert Butts. I always wonder if he listens to you. Someday he's going to come across the podcast where I tell the story. He's like, whoa. Um, but his name was Robert Fudd. Great. And um, faced in the finals. was just feeling totally on top of the world. And it was an invitational tournament. So I didn't feel like I had that much pressure on me. Right? It was early in the season. And I tech-balled him, which means in wrestling when you get you know, a margin of 15 points or more. If they felt the match I won, felt great. Right? That's match number one. Match number two is coming at the end of the season. And it's the biggest term of the year. It's the New England Championship. So this is where you really just figure out how good are you compared to everyone, every other wrestler in New England in your weight class. And I remember before the tournament started, one of my coaches said something to me that I think was well-meaning from his perspective, but it was the worst thing you could have said at the time, which was, uh, you know, this tournament is yours to lose. 
basically what he meant was like, you're seated first, you're the best wrestler here. You can, the only thing that can go wrong is you can kind of get in your own way mentally. And, oh, um, wow. and I did, because what had happened was I was so uh, attached to the outcome, I was so attached to the result of being first place that it made my wrestling a lot less dynamic in the second match than it had the first match. By that I mean I was just less open to serendipity, open to opportunities, and I was kind of clenched. I think we all have that. Every high performer has the feeling uh, kind of ready where they are kind of aware of this feeling that they can get into where they're trying to force it. You know, and they kind of know how to gut stuff out. They're just trying to kind of ram it through. Um, and sometimes that works, but in a high-stakes situation, it can be really detrimental because I... You know, semifinal match, right? Robert Butts. So this guy I had beaten handily, and he comes in, and um, I try to shoot a takedown, it doesn't work. Try to shoot the same takedown, it doesn't work. And on the third attempt, he pancakes me, which is kind of in wrestling when someone pushes you onto your back from a, from trying to take a shot. And so right off the bat, five points. You know, you got back points, everything. So right off the bat. He has a really big lead on me, and it totally threw me off my game, totally shut me down. For the rest of the match, I wasn't wrestling uh, to my potential at all. So lost that match, and I was just devastated, especially as a high school kid who, who had really staked his identity on this. Um, and I remember going behind the stands and just, just bawling, just crying my eyes out, and I was like, I never want to feel like this. And what I realized in that moment was that, you know, between the first match and the second match, I hadn't become a better wrestler, right, Marlo? I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't learned a lot more moves. There's no way I could have gotten that much stronger. It was just a few months in between. But obviously, I had showed up as a different wrestler, and so had Robert Butts, right? We were different people on the match. So it really showed me how important that mindset was, and I knew where I had blown it kind of by being too attached to the outcome, and I just kind of made the promise myself. I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to master this component that goes beyond just our technical skills. And later on, um, I kind of stumbled across a really good mantra that I think portrays kind of high performance in any domain. And I wish I could attribute the source, but everyone, you know, there's a lot of different people that I've heard it from. I can't find who started it, but it's high intention, low attachment, right? So high intention, which means I had had this part nailed as a wrestler. I had a very strong desire. I knew what I wanted to achieve. And that's really the first step. You don't know what you want. You're kind of just drifting, right? You've got to have that high intention. But sometimes what comes along with that for high performers is also a high attachment, feeling like I need this result to be okay. You know, my you, you mentioned self-worth in your intro. is something you help people with, which is awesome, because if you feel like your worth is dependent on a certain result, a certain achievement, the things that you do in the world – well, then you better believe you're going to be very tense about achieving that in those moments like that semifinals match. When your self-worth is on the line, not just a, just one match, well, you're probably not going to perform at your best because there's just too much pressure, right? It's also, by the way, just not true, right, that our worth or value fluctuates depending on how well we do in different endeavors. Um, it's kind of worth knowing, but as high performance, sometimes we buy into that. Then. Like, of course I'm what I achieve. Of course my value comes from what I contribute. Um, as opposed to just, like, nope, I'm in a kind of a human body, so this is, that's, that's stable, and I can achieve great things, I can kind of fail sometimes, and it, that stays steady. So high intention, low attachment, right? And so that, I think, is the place we want to be operating, having a really strong intention and desire, but letting go of how you get there, or even if you achieve that specific thing that you wanted. That's where you kind of end up with this loose but um, very intentional 
approach, and that obviously can be applied to business because we have we face the same stress and pressure in a business context. Absolutely. And you know what, Greg, that message that you just sent, I know that it is resonating for people out there. And, you know, we're in the people business, right? We're about people and performance and getting through. Um, and I just know that there, that what you just stated just now has a huge impact. It's, it's huge. And people do need to hear that. So don't let the fear win, right? You write this book. And let's, you know, what, is there anything specific in there that you want to share with us right now that people need to know about when they, um, when they read it? Don't let the fear win. Sure. So here's what I'd say. One of the, this will kind of tie a lot of what we talked uh, about today together, whether you pick up the book or not. Um, a really actionable thing that if you could just leave and just kind of put one thing into place from today, my encouragement would be that it's uh, some sort of morning ritual, all right? And this is, I think, becoming, we're getting more aware of this. I think people generally, that how you spend the first one or two hours of your day can make a big difference to set you up right. But I still think most of the people listening to this won't have a raw, solid morning ritual. And the reason why a morning ritual is so important because if you get it right, you've created that space, you've created that really great, solid mindset to come in and tackle your day with. Uh, and you're less likely to kind of quote unquote let the fear win, right? Let the fear have you creatively avoid, not pursue the things or take action on the things that you should. Uh, if you get it wrong, then you're kind of just going to drift right into your day, right? So an example of a bad morning ritual is, you know, you roll over, check your phone, and maybe then dive right into something that feels important or urgent at that time, right? Um, that's really not great because it's setting you up to, like, this is what everyone else needs from you, right, your inbox, and how are you ever going to figure out what's important if you're just tackling the urgent things? So a great morning ritual has three components. So I just would challenge the listeners to see, do I have all these three components within the first couple hours of my day? The first is physical. Okay, so it might not be your full workout for the day, but something just to get your body feeling good in gear. It could be a walk. It could be a bodyweight workout. It could be... Anything physical. But that's the first piece. We all know that kind of our – Tony Robbins talks about this a lot, right? Our state determines a lot of uh, what we're able to take action on, how we perform. So getting your physical state into a good place by doing something physical. The second is mental, all right? So just mentally, intellectually, how are you fueling yourself? How are you creating a foundation? So I like to read, for example. I like That's usually when I sit down and read nonfiction and kind of find out some new ideas that I want to implement into my business. Um, then the third one is the spiritual or emotional component, depending on how you look at that area of your life. So for me, I find meditation really good because, like I said, I'm kind of a naturally hyperactive, kind of anxious guy if I don't get grounded first. So taking that, you know, 20 minutes now for me, but if you're starting meditation habits, start with five minutes, right, to really uh, get those small wins is really helpful for me. It could be prayer. It could be Something else that's like maybe you draw and that's your kind of spiritual grounding. But if you have those three components, physical, mental, and spiritual, and you've done those, you can do them either, you know, within 30 minutes if you need to or, you know, two or three hours. That could be the start of your day. Um, that's going to set you up really well. And then if you dive into after that ritual, your most important thing for the day, which you should now be able to kind of reflect on, even if it's scary, you should be able to go take action on it. Then before noon hits, before you go to lunch, You've set a really solid foundation for your whole body, your mind, your spirit, and you tackle the thing that's most likely to grow your revenue, to get you clients, to uh, take your business in an innovative direction. And then 
afternoon, you can go handle your conference calls and your meetings and all the things that other people want to do. That's totally fine. You're probably going to have less creative energy later in the day. So you can kind of just coast on what's urgent after that and get the things done that you need to. But that would be the number one thing that I think is it's kind of step one for implementing how to get how tangibly do I get in a good mindset for the day. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. So listening to – you just validated very successful people in the world because you just described those those elements to success. And those of us that are out there listening that, you know, maybe striving for it, you've really clearly defined, hey, if you set it up this way, you know, this is this is really how to, to tap into it in an easy way and not overthink it. And that's a lot about the premise of your book, you know, just getting out of the way of yourself. And too often I think we find ourselves in that zone of getting in the way. And what you're saying is, you know, put yourself first. And that's where it really has the impact. Okay, so you are the one person I want to ask this question to. (laughs) I tell hundreds of people, but there's some reason. And so um, I just have to ask, um, is there such a thing as being overconfident? Because, like, you talk about people in performance and confidence, and I I stand so tall for that. But I want to get in your head for one minute about, can you be overconfident? Hmm. I think it depends on how you define confidence, and I don't want to make it kind of a semantic conversation, but for me, I don't think that you can be overconfident. I think confidence to me just kind of connotes a grounded, uh, high self-worth individual who has a high intention, right, low attachment, and that's a great place to be. I think if you look at any of the great, for example, just to use athletics, most of the great sports figures that we know, people would say, like, they're really confident. They may present in a humble way for press interviews, or they may not. They may seem more cocky in press interviews. But um, we can tell that they're confident. Granted, they believe in their – if you don't believe that you can do it, just quit here. If you give up now, it's over, right? Um, I think that hubris is something that you have to watch out for, right, where you think that either you're God's gift or you can never fail, and that can create some tough wake-up calls um, if you don't have some humility when you approach things. But – I actually think confidence is, is – it's interesting. When I got into business coaching, I expected there to be a lot of different challenges that people faced, and I expected probably some of the biggest ones were to just be strategic. People needed to know what to do to sell better, to market themselves better. And that's true to a certain extent. But I think that lack of confidence is one of the biggest issues, especially for people when they're in the earlier stages of their business. So – I don't know. I consider myself a confident guy. I think that it, in high school, um, it may have come off as a little bit cocky, which was not my intention. It was just that I had a strong will, and I was really focused on what I wanted to do. I think as I matured, I learned how to uh, monitor that a bit more socially, so I just came off as a normal person. But now, I'm a very, very confident guy, and I most of the successful people I know um, could be mistaken for overly confident. So the short answer, Marlo, is no, I don't think that you should be overly confident. Oh, my God. I love you. Oh, my gosh. I could listen to you all day. Thank <laughs> you. Right. You are in my zone. I love it. Um, and, and I get that question all the time, too. And you were eloquent in how you described it because, um, you know, confidence is it's, it's something we got to tap into. And it's, it is. I mean, to be full-bodied and to live this life that we, you know, we need to, we need to ratchet up a lot of these things that you talk about and belief and confidence. And But um, you're right. There's a big difference there. But I have to agree with you. I don't believe we can be overconfident. So 
Good answer. That was great response to that. All right. So as we wrap up this call today, to learn more about Greg Saxton, you can visit our website at marlohiggins.com where you can learn how to obtain Greg's book, connect to his resources, and add him to your circle of influence. And I just want to thank you, Greg, for being with us today and sharing your message as powerful as it was. And we invite those that are out there listening to this podcast to share it with others, and we thank you in advance for that partnership. So, Greg, make it an awesome day. Thanks for being with us. And um, Thanks for having me, Marla. Absolutely. This is Marla, your host and your chief inspirational officer. Thank you very much.